0: What's going on? This is Justin, your host here at Embodied. Uh, This week on the podcast, we'll be speaking with Yardana Peacock. Yardana is a leadership consultant, author, trainer, uh, who works at the intersections of sustainability, leadership, and social justice. She's the author of Practice Showing Up, a guidebook for white people working for racial justice, which to this date has been downloaded over 15,000 times. You can find a link to it for free in the show notes. Um, her research and work with organizations and movements pairs a long view of history with sustainable practices and strategic visions to enhance the lifespan and impact of social change work. She has worked with hundreds of changemakers and organizations globally. Uh, we spoke via the phone. Uh, she lives in Louisville, Kentucky uh, with her partner and two sons. You can find her work on her website, yardenapeacock.com which is also uh, linked to you in the show notes. Uh, so yeah, today we're gonna be talking about healing justice, trauma, uh, how Yardena got into this work in the first place, uh, and just to kind of what does it take to be a sustainable uh, worker for social change in the fast-paced world that we live in. And one more thing. If you haven't already, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us on Stitcher Radio, check us out at Twitter on at so uh, without further ado, let's start the conversation. Welcome, Yardana, to the to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Justin.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. Um long time in the making. Uh so the first question I always ask is who is uh Yardana? Who is Yardana Peacock?
1: Okay. So um Yordana Peacock is a white woman, queer, working class, um, based in the Southeast, grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, I'm a mother, partner, uh, was, you know, spend, have spent most of my adult life in social justice organizing, um, an artist, holistic healer, uh, consultant.
0: Yes, a lot of hats, a lot of hats. Um, so when did you kind of realize that you embodied some of these identities? Uh, you can pick any of them, but is there mm-hmm. uh, key moments in your life when you realize, like, this is who I am or these are the identities I inhabit?
1: hmm I think the first thing that comes to mind is in middle school. Um, I went to a performing arts high school, well, middle and high school in Cincinnati, Ohio, and it was based in Over the Rhine, um, which is uh, the inner city in Cincinnati, and so it was a mm. magnet school. It was very multiracial, and I came from a, you know, like I said, a working class background and a very colorblind household, so there was a lot of mm. uh, language around being, you know, color doesn't matter, and yet it was a very different reality at ha- in my school. Um, You know, it's very clear that it did matter. And that um, I feel like my school was really intentional about that. It was a big, Mm. big performing arts high school, like I said. And, you know, we would do productions of the whiz and we would do productions of, um, you know, Peter Pan. And there were always two casts. There was always like Mm. the cast that like definitely had to be like the, you know, I mean it was a majority black and white school, so like the mm. black cast and then the like other class class, which was like more mixed. Um mm. I feel like that I've thought a lot about that though, and I really do believe that there was some intentionality behind that. Um mm. in the sense that I don't know, like, you know, that race race does matter and so there was an acknowledgement about that not a trying to hide behind it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so what was your performing art kind of specialty going into the, the high school? Mm-hmm.
1: I was in theater and uh, oh, cool. writing creative writing. Cool.
0: Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And and so um how did you kind of get into the work that you're doing now? What was your journey from, you know, from high school? The, all the hats that you're wearing now, specifically you know in social justice and mm-hmm. um, all those things.
1: Well, I think the journey, you know, I mean, I think it started really there in the middle school, you know um, mm-hmm. because of the the, re, the kind of the language and language has always been so important, like how folks talk about different things. And for mm. me, language helps me understand my placement in it all. And so, mm. like as I mentioned before, the colorblind language didn't really jive with the reality of my experience. Um, mm. And so, I I guess I would say that you know when I when another really pivotal moment was when I met Ann Braden, who was a white anti-racist woman. She was a profess- a professor of mine at Northern Kentucky University when I was an undergraduate. And she uh, was, you know, like I said, a longtime anti-racist uh, she was a journalist. Uh, she you knew she worked with all kinds of folks, Ella Baker and um, Septima Clark and with the Highlander Research and Education Center um, with Martin Luther King Jr. And she gave me a language as a white person. And so I think mm. that when I connected to the language of what it meant to be a different kind of white person, an anti racist white person, that helped me kind of step into a path forward around, mm. you know, where activism and art and healing could meet up.
0: Yeah. And so how old were you when you met her or what time what, what stage of life was that? I
1: was twenty I was about twenty five.
0: 25 okay cool and so growing up you know you said you grew up in a colorblind household and, and you went into this school that was very intentional what was it like to go to the school that was intentional and then come back to a colorblind household like how did you kind of situate yourself uh both in, at school and then at, at home in your family
1: I mean I think I felt confused you know I mean I I tried to I tried on the colorblindness <laughs> Like, language-wise, you know, where I yeah. would date people and I'd say, you know, I'm, like, such and such is coming over. And then it was, like, when they came over, if they weren't white, then it was, like, oh, well, why didn't you tell me? And then I was, like, mm. well, I thought, you know, I thought it didn't matter. And yeah. It clearly did. So, I feel like I really struggled, you know, for a long time. Um, and it wasn't really until till college and the kind of the right language dived up that I mm-hmm. could really make sense of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, for, for you, once you met Anne Brayden, kind of what, what was your next step? You know, cause I think a lot of folks right now are even kind of having those moments, you know, like you, for you it was meeting Anne Brayden, but for them it's, you know, mm-hmm. Orlando Castile, you know, there's all these different stories going around. And I know you have a, you know, campaign right now that you're pushing practice, showing up, um, hashtag practice, showing up a little promo right there. Um, but what, what is, what, you know, what was your next step after you realized, you know, this is what I'm, I want to do or I'm interested in. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I don't really feel like it was like something like, oh, I want to do this. It was like, um. You have an oppor- You have an opportunity here to step into a different kind of history. And what kind of his what, what side of history do you want to be on? And that history isn't something that just happens in the past, but it's an ongoing continuum. It's something that we step into constantly. Um. So through the meeting of Ann Braden, I I ended up moving to her hometown, Louisville, Kentucky. To go to mm. graduate school, and I was in the Pan African Studies Department, which is a Black Studies department. And the reason why I chose Pan African Studies was, you know, to better situate, um, to understand the history of the United States from the perspective of Black people. Um, mm. Because I, because school, you know, just primary education, school just teaches you from a white perspective. And I was, you know, culturally raised white. So I wanted to understand history, um, a different, you know, the different perspective of history. Yeah. And that's something else I think Anne really taught me is that, you know, history doesn't just happen one way. It happens a lot of different ways, depending upon the Mm -hmm. perspective of different folks. Yeah. And I think when I entered into the the Pan-African Studies program, I was, you know, just kind of coming into being an anti-racist white person and, you know, feeling you know, some, some comfort in that. Um, but I, you know, I think I entered in, in a way that was like still a little blinded by what my, pre- mm. what my presence in a black studies program like meant. And mm. it was, a, there was a lot of assumptions that, um, that I belonged, <laughs> you know, mm. I think that's some, some white privilege for sure. Um, And I really kind of came to understand that, you know, this was not, this was not my, I think throughout it was pretty complicated, but I think when I came into the fact that I was, you know, I, I'm white and that my showing up in a Black Studies program, like doesn't mean that people have to automatically like accept and be excited that I'm there. Um, mm. That I have to earn people's trust and, you know, build real relationships that are, you know, moving through a lot of complicated histories.
0: Yeah. Are there any, like, specific stories that come to mind that are kind of uh, emblematic of that time or kind of represent that process for you in, in the Pan-African Studies program?
1: I mean, I think for there were several white folks who were in the pan reference studies program and i think for the white folks it was just like how down quote unquote can you be how uh, like for the white students it was you know if you were set if if folks told you like oh wow like i can't believe you're white like then that was like mm. oh a badge of you you know you have a uh, you've come over and i think for yeah. me it was kind of Resisting trying to fall into that, like I don't want to be seen as not white, like I want to be seen as a mm. white person that you know can be in a multiracial space in a way that is respectful and honoring, mm. and that also is complicated and hard um, so I just remember you know I mean just lots of different conversations in the computer room, which is where everybody did their homework, uh, yeah, just having those kind of conversations with folks and and really being conscious not to kind of fall into this place of, um, yeah, I'm, I'm like, you know, one of, one of a few white people that's like down enough to be here. Like, no, I'm yeah. white. And that there is like, there's, there is possibility and there is like hope for other white people to like come into that. And like, I see, I see my role in part of that.
0: Mm-hmm. And so as you, um, came out of that what are some um things that you learned about um you know the experience of black people that like you didn't know before coming in or like what were some like aha moments for you through that process
1: i think that i mean there's just so much pain and trauma so much trauma
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and the capacity for black people to be so resilient and mm. um, to show up to all of that in a way that was so grounded in hope and imagination for something different and a belief mm. in the dignity of humanness, which I think is really happening now, you know with the Black lives movement as well mm. I think that white people have are so blinded and are, you know, constantly. I mean, I, I don't even think that folks like realize that they feel so culturally, um, what's the word, culturally detached from like what it means to be a white person. Um, mm. and so I think it was like, I don't know, I mean, I, it's hard to describe, but just the, to learn from, a different perspective in the sense of it wasn't that, you know, black people were slaves. It's that Mm. black people were enslaved. And this is the complicated ways in which that happened, you know, Mm. from Brazil and from the Caribbean and, Mm -hmm. you know, and the different places that folks ended up and what, what folks went through, but also how they responded. Mm Mm-hmm. With such resilience and such resistance, um, that's just not something that you learn in a typical history book in high school. Yeah, it's not yeah. even something so, you learn in college, unless you're taking mm-hmm. a Black Studies, you know, history class. And so I think yeah. it was about centering, you know, Black people. It was about centering women in a different kind of way, and realizing the ways that white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy invisibilize people's experiences and the truth around like the way history rolls out mm. and so there was a liberation that happened for me in like understanding that and feeling robbed of the full picture um yeah and so it helped ground me when i was talking about like white people you know feel very culturally confused i mean for me it, it helped ground me in okay so This is the legacy of white people, and how are you going to move forward and what's your legacy Mm -hmm.
0: going to be? Yeah, yeah. I want to go back really quickly. Um, So someone's sitting here listening to this uh, episode, and they're like, uh, okay, what's the difference between being a slave and being enslaved? How would you kind of differentiate between the two? Um, Kind of as an example of, you know, you're using it as an example of something that you realize, you know, so how would you explain that to someone who's just like, what's the difference between the two? Mm-hmm.
1: Like being a slave and being a passive experience um, mm. and being enslaved was something that, you know, it wasn't, it, they weren't passively like coming into slavery. Uh, right. Folks were, were actually taken from their homes and that there was a, you know, an intentional process and plan that extracted a people from their homes to build up you know white folks um, white folks' wealth and you know plantations and farms and all that but it wasn't it wasn't like a it wasn't like folks willingly did that you
0: know? yeah so yeah it was
1: like those s- were the folks who were in power and enslaving people as opposed to a passive exchange
0: yeah yeah and so did you feel like you could bring this kind of information home or was it kind of stuff that was more difficult to integrate to family and you know things like that
1: i mean for sure i brought it home with mixed results
0: <laughs> yeah
1: um, you know lots of christmas and thanksgiving conversations full of, full of a lot of um, battles and a lot of denial yeah hmm. I, I think that having the home conversations is always a struggle
0: yeah in your estimation were those battles worth it or you know like you know does it did it feel like that was something that you look that you look back on and you're like yeah i'm glad i did that for sure even even though they were battles. I
1: mean, I don't feel like it was I mean, I think in part it was like about battling myself and battling my own understanding and all of it and you know, battling the kind of the the history and the culture of our family and how folks were denying that, right? Um. Hmm. And I don't I don't know that I made much progress like during that time in the way that I you know, showed up, but uh for me that was how I had to show up and I had to you know, really stand um, stand in my beliefs in my breaking open that was occurring.
0: Mm, mm. And
1: it continues to occur, I think, in us in a softer way in relationship to my family. I mean, honestly, mm. for the first time recently, my mother's actually like acknowledged, you know, what it is that I do and who I am. And it was because mm. the National Catholic reporter Uh, recently wrote an article about the resource you mentioned practice showing up and because they validated it then you know she shared it on her facebook and was like i'm so proud of my daughter and all of the racial justice work that she does
0: (laughs) yeah i mean that i think I, i resonate with that and i know a lot of other people resonate with you know the struggle between, you know, doing this work and being surrounded by people who quote unquote get it and then trying to have conversations at Thanksgiving, you know, that just go sideways or south, you know, really quickly. Um, and so I think for me, I, I even encourage like, yeah, even though those conversations are difficult, you know, there is value in pushing through, you know, mm-hmm. maintaining relationships, um, continuing to say, hey, this is what I'm doing, you know even if the effect comes, you know like you're saying years down the line like it wasn't like it happened after a year of you doing this work it's been a couple of years <laughs> so, you know of doing this stuff before that i mean
1: more now. than 10 justin <laughs> just right that's what
0: i'm saying yeah. I, i'm not gonna you know i'm just i'm just saying yeah, I'm yeah not gonna, for like, sure. you know I'm, yeah. just, I'm just you know uh, i met a couple in like the general yeah yeah like the general <laughs> you like a general couple that's that's what i met you know uh Yes, because you have been doing the work for a long time, so I don't mean to No, way.
1: no, I just meant, like, it's been a long road in the sense that they, my my family finally acknowledging it, it's not like it was a couple years for them to acknowledge it. I meant it, like, took 10 plus.
0: Right, right, right. So, that's yeah, I mean, we could just keep it real, because, like, it could take more than it, that for some folks, you know? Yeah. yeah, a lifetime. And so, um, you know, and I think that makes sense to me, because these types of conditionings didn't come ac- come come along, like, overnight, you know? They've been being impressed upon us for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, And so one of the things I've been interested in a lot in lately is trauma. Um, And you mentioned this, you know, a few minutes ago, but um, I like it a lot of times we think about, oh, the slaves went through this or people went through this during the Jim Crow South or, you know, and these happened to our great, great grandparents and grandparents, but what does that have to do with me? You know, like I didn't have those things happen to me. Um, And so in the work that you do, um, what, how does trauma work across generations? You know, Um, and you talked about pain and resiliency and, Mm -hmm. uh, but what is, what is the effect of trauma on us, even if we didn't personally experience it? Like, how can it kind of play itself out?
1: Well, I mean, we are personally experiencing it right now.
0: That's true, that's <laughs> you know? true, but some people might say like I didn't I'm not a slave, you know, so I didn't experience it, or I didn't own slaves, so therefore, you
1: mm-hmm. know I mean, I think this really is what where spirituality comes in, you know
0: mm.
1: um, And what I mean by that is that a connection to a connection to the past and the history, not from a like philosophical and mind way, but from a spirit way. Mm. I mean, everything that has ever happened to us is in our bodies. And everything that has happened to any, you know, to our people is also in our bodies because that's carried on, you know, and passed on. Mm. So it's like your body is made up of all of these little cells, right, that have been passed on and each one like has like some sort of something that is like carried from it yeah S- um, story some sort or, of story yeah. or something um, mm-hmm. and then you know in the Sri Vidya Tantric tradition that I'm like coming from and standing in and then there's karma and mm-hmm. that's uh, inherit, like there's inherited karma that we have um, which might not come from our direct line of ancestors but comes from just you know How, when we, when we became in this, in this moment in time in earth, kind Mm. of what, how the stars were aligned and, you know, what was like passed on to us in that moment. But, uh, you know, going back to the body, I mean, the body is such a, such an incubator for all of this. And mm. we live in a in the Western world in a way that is so disconnected from our body, and we live very much in the mind space, so everything is intellectualized, everything is understood through uh thinking. yeah, and mm-hmm. when we when we sink into the body, when we sink into the emotions and the feelings of what's you know the experience then we start to feel things that feel different, that feel uncomfortable, you know, that can't be worked out in the mind. And there's Mm. things that happen that are unexplainable. And so I believe Mm. that that is a part, the linking of the past that starts to unfold or the linking of things within you that you didn't realize existed. I know for myself, you know, um, through my practice and through my meditation and yoga practice, especially, when I started to go deep into my body, when I started to tunnel into the pain of, you know, in my hip or the tightness around my heart or the indigestion in my stomach, that was the, that was, it was there that I was able to then feel and be open to and experience, you know, flashbacks from my own like trauma from childhood, you know, and things that I, don't remember happening, you know, surfaced.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And as, you know, as the years have gone by and as my practices deepened, I mean, I feel I can go into myself and feel the past, you know, more present. The connection mm-hmm. of where I came from that's unexplainable, that's not easily accessible or you know, I can't easily connect like, oh, this is from that person, but it mm. feels like it's more ancient than just me and my own history. So that's my experiential understanding of, you know, generational trauma. And then, I mean, I just feel, and I think you feel, and so many other folks feel too, mm. the busyness of the world, and then mm. the la- layering on top of that, these... um the expectations, you know, from our from our families, from our culture, from our work, uh, right. from our partnerships, from our friendships, um, and then layered on top of that, you know, you have the, um, you know, the desires to be able to show up to all of that. Um, it often feels like you need to be a superhuman to be able to do that. And then the state of the world, you know, is yep. in... Complete and total breaking open and breaking apart. And then regardless of whether or not you are interacting with that, like that energy exists and you are feeling it to an extent.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then
1: depending upon the work that you're doing, and a lot of folks I assume who listen, you know, are in kind of social change making fields. I mean, that is secondary trauma work. Yep. So you have all these layers and it's very overwhelming and it's very painful.
0: Mm. Yeah. Can I, can I ask a question real quick Mm. about what you just said? Sure. Um, You just said that um, doing change work is secondary trauma work, which is something I've seen you say before, but I think it's a really key point, um, especially for people like me and other people listening. Could you explain a little bit more what you mean by that, and um, <laughs> what are the "quote unquote" symptoms of that, or you know, how do you kind of, how do you diagnose that in yourself, or what does that look like, and
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, maybe even how did you come to discover that uh, for yourself? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I mean, it has been documented for sure. So it's not just something that I'm saying. I mean, there's been research that's been done about it. A great book is um, called Trauma Stewardship. Mm. It's talking about social workers and also people that are in change-making fields. And secondary trauma is when you are in spaces where you're constantly listening, talking, and working with people that are in primary trauma. And what happens is that trauma takes us out of our parasympathetic nervous system or our parasymp- it, it invites our parasympathetic nervous system to get into this mode of either fight or flight.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And so we're kind of like on the outside of our skin, you know, a little bit like on the ready.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And so I think some symptoms are that you just are constantly feeling a lot of pressure, that you're feeling very overwhelmed and anxious, um, that you're feeling... Like there's a never-ending list of things to do. That there's too much injustice in the world, and that you taking a pause or a break, or you know, taking care of yourself is counter to you know making any kind of impact uh, mm. towards changing that injustice. Um, I think it shows up in the ways that we interact with our, in our relationships, um, the shortness that we may or may not have, our inability to be attentive and present with our kids. Um The ways that we detach from the moment that we're in, because we're you know considering all of the things that should be done in order to address the injustices in the world, the things that need mm. to be changed, there's a constant pressure that's like almost um vibrating into us, and like we feel very boxed in by it and yet very pulled by it, you know. And it's almost like you kind of are living in a bit of a bubble, um, but very much active in the world. Something else that happens, you know, in change-making work is that it's there's a lot of adrenaline, especially in campaigns. Mm. And so there's, you know, there's the fight response, right? Like, you have to, like, show up. And for our bodies to mm-hmm. show up, it's like this adrenaline is being pumped into our bodies. We're able to stay up later. Or we're able to, you know there's this energy it's on this masculine energy too of like go 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 of like we've got to do this because you know we have this deadline and it's like life or death i mean this is serious and it's urgent and we're like all here you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's wearing yeah and then we can't get we can't sink in and and rest Mm. because we're on the constant go and we're constantly agitated and yeah. and anger is important and pain is important and sadness is important. Those are emotions that fuel us. But when we're always in this place of the upper, like I'd say, like upper chest and above, you know, this feeling like we're just gonna like float off in this space, you know, after you when you drink coffee, you kind of get that like buzz effect. When you're constantly mm-hmm. feeling like in that space. Mm-hmm then the ways that we can respond are less deep and thoughtful and compassionate. It's like mm-hmm. just off the cuff all the time.
0: Yeah. It also feels to me like um, like an unsustainable model. For sure. You know? mm-hmm. uh, and for some of us who are newer, like myself, in this work, um, first year or whatever, you're in that, at least I found myself to be in that kind of heightened state like, all the time, you know, because, you know, everything's happened, things keep happening, you know, um, events keep happening, unarmed people are dying, you know, and so you don't really have a chance to come down if you don't take the time to come down, um, it's, but I, you know, I'll keep it, I'll keep it real, though, it's hard, because, like, you do feel like you're, um, you know, letting, letting somebody down, or letting the movement down, if you aren't Fighting, You know, um, if you're not fighting, you're, you know, you're complicit with the systems of oppression, you know, like that's kind of the, the feeling I had, you know, personally. Um, and I also recognize that for me personally, you know, I'm friends with a lot of social justice folks on Facebook. Uh, and so everything, so every time something goes down. My feed is, you know, thing after thing after thing after thing after thing, triggering this fight or flight, high adrenaline you know, high RPM in the words, in the you know, in car language kind of effect on me, um, which begins to, as you say, take a toll on my, you know, ability to be present with my family, et cetera, et cetera. Like, what do we, how do, what do we do? Like, how do we, because I think my, my initial reaction to discovering this about myself was like, well, I either have to choose this work or choose my family, you know, but that's not, you know, that's not the right kind of thinking about it either. Um, But so like, how do people kind of, you know, care for themselves while also maintain their, you know, well, and and part of it too is like, we can't build a movement that's like, well, if you're not here all the time, if you, you know, if you care for yourself, you're soft. Like, I don't think that's a good thing either, but for our own selves, how do we kind of uh, navigate these spaces and navigate these kind of complications, you know? Mm
1: Mm-hmm. And I really feel like that's where we are right now as a movement, you know, for social justice and social change across the world. Because folks, I mean, when you say like, oh, you know, I can't and I know you don't like believe this, but you know, theoretically, oh like if I stop then I'm letting someone down and Right. But then that decenters your own importance and your own divinity in the movement for social change as though you are unimportant. And that's what capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy want you to believe is that you are unimportant. And so you should give everything and all like above like your basic needs to Mm. something else, because then capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy win because you are not important. So I think Mm. it's about centering in part your importance as a person, as a human, and that you're not just, a worker or a fighter or a warrior, but that you are also mm. a human being that feels and thinks and has emotions and trauma that needs to be cared and tended for. Mm. So, um, how do you how do you do it? I mean, so I believe it's about centering healing, like I said. But there's a lot of different ways to be able to show up. I believe, mm. and what, what I've seen in the lot you know, the last ten years of, of my work, especially in the intersections of healing and leadership and social justice, and some of those things are that it's not that healing, that wellness doesn't happen just as an individual act, but it's something that happens in the community.
0: Mm.
1: And so when, mm. organizations, when or, you know organizing campaigns center that, you know, something different happens from it you know there is a like a deep long relationship building that is less um, that is more sustainable and less about mm-hmm. response um, there's rituals and practices that are both community centered but also that are individual you know that we have rituals and practices that ground us from like the moment we wake up you know whether that's like giving gratitude or saying a prayer or you know gathering at your altar and lighting a candle and taking a few breaths or whether that's, you know, breaking bread with folks, um, inviting people over, you know, with your family and community. Mm. Um, that there's earth, you know, that the earth is a vital part of our grounding and our experience. Acknowledging the earth, like being in the natural world, connecting to it. Mm. Um That that we create intentional spaces with each other and that we take intentional space for ourselves, whether that's in the transition from, you know, walking out the door of our own homes to a meeting, but we can't just, we can't pop from one thing to the next thing to the next thing without acknowledging the moments in between.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think for me, you know, one of the deep, like I just said, the deep realizations is that, you know, you talked about popping from one thing to the next thing, to the next thing, Um, you know, even though I may not be doing that in my physical body, like I may not be jumping from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting. If I'm spending, you know, eight hours, six hours, five hours, four hours, whatever on my phone, looking at Facebook, it's kind of doing the same, it's having the same effect on me you know, and the mental and spiritual uh, are having a similar effect, you know? And so what are some strategies for kind of self-care in terms of, you know, we live in a digital age, you know, a lot of stuff happens on social media. You, you know, folks may be afraid to, to miss something. I know that's something I feared, you know, like in, in terms of lessening that, you know, and so as you've worked with leaders, how have you kind of helped people, balance that kind of stuff out because this is all new to all of us you know so
1: yeah and i want to say like it i mean i think that in part it's just about knowing what's knowing the tools or the strategies right um but it's as human beings like we always are it's always a struggle it's not like i haven't figured out either but one thing yeah no totally. one thing i tell folks is that um if you can't set If you feel like you're in control, like you're out of control. Um, Mm. And what I mean by that is that, you know, a lot of times I think folks have a hard time with like just what you were saying. Like, I'm going to miss something. It's like, oh, like I'm in control. Like I got it. You know, I need to be like constantly plugged in.
0: I'm good. I'm good. I'm
1: good. (laughs) I'm good. Like I got this. And it's like, well, that's that's an out of control. Like you're out of control if you can't like control your tendency towards that. So I think the first step is just like acknowledging like what are the tendencies what are the what are the times when you're kind of like you know, can you like set your phone aside? Can you like turn off your computer? like do you mm. need to be available twenty four seven? So I think one thing that you know one strategy that folks do and you know something I try to do myself is like have really clear boundaries about when the when the phone is being interacted with. Or when the internet's being interacted with. I mean, so mm. for myself, I try to stick with like a 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Um, if I have like a meeting at nighttime, then, you know, that'll be different. But, and then at least one day during the weekend, it's just, you know, no technology at all. Mm. Just try to be with my family.
0: Yeah. yeah. And
1: I mean, I think it's different, you know, for different folks and different you know, different times of life. I mean, there was definitely a period of time when, you know, recently this summer where I was, like, really plugged in, like, 24-7, you know? Mm-hmm. And that needed mm-hmm. to happen. Uh, mm-hmm. But that was, like, a conversation that my partner and I had. And, um, you know, I was working on the Practice Showing Up resource, which is, a you know, an e-book for white people to practice showing up as an anti-racist mm-hmm. white person and racial justice work.
0: Which we'll we'll link to in the show notes as well. Yeah,
1: but I mean, as I was working on that, I was, you know, I was like really working hard, and you know, so he was he was taking care of the kids and he was like cooking dinners and you know, but it was a conversation we had about, you know, this needs to happen. This is really important. People are asking for this, yeah. and so I feel like you know, in a bit of it's a bit of a dance, but I think you just try on different things and. I think the first step really though is to know that you are you're part of all of this too like you're not something separate mm-hmm. it's not just about the about what you can produce or what you can give it's also about like you are a human in all of this and mm. you know you have value and what are the ways that you can show up to yourself in that acknowledgement and really treat yourself as a divine being
0: Again, thank you for joining us this week on the podcast. Um, Make sure you join us next week to hear the second part of our conversation with Yardana. Uh, It'll be just as good as this one. Uh, If you want more of her info, you can always uh, go to the show notes to find that. Uh, YardanaPeacock.com is there and also the link to the practice showing up guidebook. Um, So, yeah, thank you for listening and we'll see you next week.